0: This podcast contains depictions of violence and abuse perpetrated against children, including sexual abuse and rape, as well as suicide, institutional racism, intergenerational trauma and a bit of swearing. But there's also friendship, love, inappropriate puns and general skullduggery. The survivors of Lake Alice want their stories to be heard. But do take care when and where you listen.
1: Stuff Podcasts previously on the lake.
0: There's no other tool. it's just me.
1: Dr legs he said to me, you're going to get shock treatment, that's it. No, that is not ECT. Have some of that pirelohide through my pissy arse. <laughs> From Popsock Media and Stuff, this is The Lake, a podcast about the children of Lake Ellis. I'm Aaron Smale and this is episode three, The Case of the New Ayan Boy. <laughs> We've already met some great characters. Rangi Whitcliffe and Tyrone Marks, the friends who went through welfare homes together as kids and were sent on to Lake Alice Psychiatric Hospital when they were 10 and 11. 14-year-old Leonie McEnroe, with the abusive foster parent Mother T. And of course, Dr. Selwyn Leeks, the head psychiatrist at the Child and Adolescent Unit, which he set up. It's time to meet someone new, Someone who's a really important piece of the Lake Ellis puzzle. I said,
2: please, Dr. Reese, I don't want this. If it's going to hurt, please. But he just seemed to take no notice. He just seemed to be laughing more.
3: After a 13 year old psychotic Nguyen boy received ECT, allegedly without consent, the Auckland Committee on Racism and Discrimination and a Scientology group demanded and got. A
1: Magisterial Inquiry. You outsmarted all the staff. <laughs> you smuggled out the contraband. <laughs> you smuggled the message out. I think you should be a spy, bro. <laughs> CIA. <laughs> this boy's name is Hakeanga Politama Halo. Most people call him Hake.
2: I'm even a great great grandfather, eh? Yeah. How many? Just one or two so far in Australia. And
1: how many children? I, I got four. Hake is a gentle giant. He's a big guy with a warm, slightly shy demeanour. He's 58 and he's got a great head of wavy silver hair and a full moustache to match. On the day we meet, he's got a cut on his nose. He had a seizure at the casino the night before and bashed his face on the pokey machine. Hake had epilepsy as a baby and it's returned in adulthood.
2: I just (laughs) fainted and had a foot or something and... That's when they called an ambulance and took me up to Auckland last, yesterday. Haka
1: lives in Owairaka, which is between Mount Albert and Mount Roskill in Auckland. This is where the Owairaka boys' home used to be.
2: This is one of the main places that I hate, man. (laughs) And that uh, I really hate was the security block at the back. I hate that place.
1: Hake was raised by his grandparents in Niue, which is something that happens a lot in Polynesia and amongst Māori here in New Zealand. And when Hake's grandparents came to New Zealand in the late 60s, they brought their six-year-old grandson with them. Hake hadn't been to school in Niue, and he didn't speak English. So when he was enrolled in school here, he was put in a special class with, and this is the language of the day, mentally disturbed students. They tested Hake's IQ, At that time IQ scores had labels like superior and very superior and if you got a score below 65 you were considered defective. Hake was assessed as low average or dull but there was a major problem with the assessment. It was done in English, not in UAE. It
2: was pretty hard for me, yes. The language part in school and in school don't seem to understand it because I can't speak
1: English. Did that get you into trouble, not understanding?
2: I'd say that it does. It's like, say, when the teacher asks a question or something, and if I don't answer, well, that's another trouble.
1: So did you get punished for not understanding things?
2: I didn't answer because I didn't understand it. But they, they might say that I, did, I didn't answer because I wasn't listening. They mistaken it.
1: Were there any other kids in the class that were from Neway? No. So you must have felt pretty lonely then, I guess. Yeah, I, I was. Over the next six years, Hake was sent to several different primary schools and was always put in the special classes. Some teachers described him as hard to control at times, overactive, ebullient, aggressive and bullying. Others thought he was warm, cheerful, an affectionate boy. Eventually Hake started to get the hang of his schoolwork, helped along by a teacher who saw his potential, Miss Whiteford.
2: My teacher there has already understand my problems, so she seems to be very helpful. So she would take time with you? Yes. She was helping me out for... If she knows, she gives me something to do. And if I don't do it, she knows that I don't understand it, that I'm pretty slow. And she'll come and sort of help me out on trying, explaining it properly, you know, slowly. Telling me the easier words to try and make me understand it. I was already starting there to learn to speak and that, and understand how to do my work and all those things.
1: But when Miss Whiteford went on leave, a replacement arrived, who wasn't so sympathetic. And one day, everything went wrong. Here's how Hucky tells it.
2: And we were, I think it's a song practice or something we had to do. And I wasn't listening and all that. And she got all upset about it and dragged me out of the classroom and locked me out of the class. And it was pretty dark in that hallway, so I was scared. I was crying out there, and I was uh, pushing on the door to uh, try and open the door to re- go back in the class, but the door was locked. So what happened was I was just actually pushing, 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 but the door was can't open. But the mistake that I did was I should have pushed on the wooden part of the door. But instead of that, I pushed on the glass. My hand went through the glass.
1: After that, Hake went to Auckland Hospital and they wrote a report that said he had violently punched the window. But that's not what Hake says. He reckons the scars from that day are proof, because they're not on his hands, they're on his wrists. Yeah, Yeah. Okay. that's a pretty serious scar. Yeah. That's the proof of my story. After he was discharged, Hake did an eight-month stint in St John's Psychiatric Hospital. His grandparents weren't happy about it, and they got him out with the help of the local reverend. They took him back to Niue for a break and came back to New Zealand for Christmas. But soon after, Hake's grandfather died. They'd been really close, By 1974, teachers had realised that Hakea didn't have an intellectual disability and he was bored in the special classes. But he kept getting into trouble at school and also picked up a minor shoplifting habit. By 1975, he'd been before the children's court a few times and had come to the attention of social welfare. Finally, when he was 12, Hakea was placed in Owaraka Boys' Home. He was welcomed with a stay in the security block what happened there? Nothing.
2: You just have to sit on the bed. It, there's n- nothing that happens, you know. There's nothing to do or anything. You just, you're locked in the room and that's it.
1: Hake spent four days in a cell. A lot of the kids that ended up at Lake Ellis went through a few welfare homes before they arrived. But Hake was only at Owaraka for a month before he was sent on. Did you know where you were going
2: uh, no, not really, because nothing was explained to, to us, or even to my mum and dad, especially to my mother who, who signed the papers.
1: When you say your mother, is this like your
2: grandmother that brought now, you up? my mother, my birth mother.
1: Hake's family were told he was going to a school and asked to sign some forms. There wasn't an interpreter to help them, and they signed. Hake's Mangafawa was supposed to go with him to the airport, but a social worker picked him up from Ōaraka before they got there. His family chased him in a taxi and managed to get to the airport, just in time for Hake to wave goodbye from the window of the plane. When did you first meet Dr Leakes?
2: I can't remember the about. I'd say when he, it's
1: time to give me my first ECT. Did, had you heard anything about him, or did you know anything about ECT? No, I didn't, I didn't know anything. By the time Hake was admitted to Lake Ellis, in late 1975, the adolescent unit had been running for about three years. The number of kids in the unit fluctuated, but there were probably dozens at this time, usually between 8 and 16 years old, though we have heard of one 4-year-old who was there. Hake's first treatment from leaks sounds like genuine electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. He was anaesthetised and he felt no pain. But the next time was quite different.
2: And they just put it on the, way, the same way how it goes, the procedure, lie down on the bed and everything. And I asked him, it's just going to hurt. Because I can feel it too. Something's not right over here on this one. And he just said, yes, it will. And that's the time I started crying. I said, okay, if it's going to hurt, please don't do it. I don't want it. Please. Oh, and that's what he was going kind of like. Oh, sorry, mate. Still, if you don't want it, you can, you can still get it. And that's the type I was really starting to panic in. What
1: were the other staff doing?
2: Nothing. I said, please, Dr. Lee, I don't want this. But he just seemed to take no notice. He just seemed to be laughing more, you know, as if it's making fun of us. What can he do? He's just so mean, he won't even take any notice of our requests. He's just seemed to enjoy what he's doing.
1: The script for Hake's story had already been written by those in authority. In his notes at the time, Leeks actually described Hake as a living memorial to the inadequacies of the immigration system. At Christmas time, Hake was sent back to have a break with his family in Auckland. It should have been nice, but it wasn't. Hake had an adopted sister who was about five years older than him. She'd gotten into a relationship and had a baby. But then one day, she didn't come home.
2: So me and the grandmother started sort of ringing around to the friends and asking around if they have seen her or where... Do any of the French know where she is and
1: all that? She was gone three weeks, and Hake started to get worried. He found out where her boyfriend Bob lived and went round to his place. He figured out that his sister was locked in a front room, but when he knocked on the door, Bob said he hadn't seen her. Hake stood his ground, and eventually Bob got his keys and unlocked the door to let his sister out. They went home.
2: After a while, a couple of weeks, he came down to see her. But I heard her telling him to go. From this day, I don't want to see you anymore. This is the end of it. Don't come back. So he just went, okay, that's all. He said to her, that, okay, I'll go. But I didn't even think that anything serious was going to happen the, during the night. We were all sleeping, went to bed, just as normal. Around about 2 to 3 a.m., there was a scream, a loud scream from the front room. Because I was sleeping with the old lady in her room. After the scream, I heard the, the big footsteps running and the front door slammed. But when I went down to check her out, because I was the first one who got there, that's when I saw the real thing. I walked up to her. She, she looked up that time. she seemed slowly. Blood was coming out of her mouth. And the knife was lying on the chest. My sister's name is Mitway.
1: Metatawaai had been murdered in her sleep while her baby slept next to her. The police arrested Bob that night and he admitted everything. Hake was heartbroken. He loved Mituai, and now she was gone.
2: Well, I'm just angry and that I've lost somebody that I really loved and I'm close to, which is my main supporter as well. Cause she's I was in Lake Alice in uh, nineteen seventy-five. She was the only support I had, sending down parcels each week when I was down there. Little packets of lonies and chips and that.
1: Haki was thirteen. He didn't get any victim support or counseling. And no surprises here, his behavior got worse. On February 2nd, 1976, Hakehalo was sent back to Lake Ellis. You might remember that Dr. Leakes was only at Lake Ellis part-time, showing up on Fridays to lead group therapy sessions and deliver shock treatment. So the day-to-day running of the unit had been left to a core group of nurses and nurse aides, and a number of them seemed to have abused the power that they were given but when hake returned there things had started to change there'd been a big turnover of staff at the adolescent unit following some allegations of mistreatment of patients a new charge nurse was appointed and he had new rules an actual school was set up in 1975 and teachers were employed to run it one of those teachers was a 28-year-old named Anna Natouche.
4: A good teacher not only teaches, but learns from his or her students.
1: As well as being a teacher, Anna had a degree in psychology. She had taught in schools in Hastings, where the Department of Education had noticed that she did well with kids from troubled backgrounds. They offered her a place at Lake Ellis. Anna was excited
4: The teaching from my angle was blissful. It really was. I'd had the big class of 35 children and suddenly I only had eight. You could devote the time to every child.
1: And the children at Lake Ellis didn't seem too different from the ones that she'd taught in Hastings.
4: I felt they were normal children, just with problems. I mean, there was a lot of delinquency, There was incest there was rape there was a breakdown of the family they didn't have a church network of support of love which is very important if you have that I had a very settled class I had discipline I had a sense of justice a sense of purpose
1: And in most cases Anna believes
4: they weren't mentally ill you know with a funny sort of you know, you've got to be on drugs for the rest of your life and be, have a second-rate life. That, that wasn't so.
1: Leeks' shock treatment was based on something called operant conditioning. We don't need to get into it here, but basically you reward good behaviour and punish bad behaviour. Selwyn and Leeks didn't seem to have much time for positive encouragement. And this is where Anna focused her attention... Remember that lake that Irangi was excited to go canoeing on in the last episode? It actually existed. There are a few lakes in the area, and the kids love going to the lake.
4: That lake was a great, great thing. We had to do a pond study, and they just... They just blossomed. So what I, what I said... Well, if we get our maths and our English and our subjects in the morning, we'll make it to the pond. If you want to write poetry or you want to do English, you want to do reading or maths, whatever your favourite subject, you you take it and go to the pond. So it was really nice to see the nurses, the way they supported me in that classroom. They saw the difference... They, they would march across, we'd all march in a line to keep them in order. You know, there's, there's reason for all these things. So they marched them out and we all marched right, right through the thing. They kept them in line and kept them from stealing from the canteen or whatever. And then we'd get to the pond and um, everybody would scatter under the trees. And I had one boy who was very withdrawn was almost catatonic and suddenly he got up and he got into the pond and started to catch a fish <laughs> well I thought this is for to, to all to celebrate so the teacher got into the pond and, and caught the fish with our hands you know if you can just trigger something, You don't need shock treatment. You don't need all these cruel treatments. You really don't.
1: The kids liked Anna, and they trusted her. So they told her what was happening to them.
4: Oh, they were telling me about the shock treatment, and they they really were telling me about a regime of utter terror.
1: Anna found out that if the kids got bad school marks, say they got four Ds in a week, they'd get shock treatment
4: which was unmodified, without anaesthetic and just an electric shock.
1: So she started to help the kids find ways of avoiding the punishment.
4: What I did in the end was that I'd twiddle the, the marks. If, <laughs> if it, was, it was absolutely honest, I, never, I still went on with my behaviour modification system. I rewarded and I ignored the rest. But they never did anything really bad. They really didn't.
1: After Haki went back to Lake Ellis, after losing his sister, Metuai, he was put into Anna's class. She wasn't
2: happy with us getting those things, those ECTs. And that's why she gets angry and angry. Because another thing she was really strong on why bring us no more kids into this place? at Lake Alice for not doing just normal things.
1: This was the start of a lifelong friendship between Anna and Hake. But not everyone saw Hake's value like she did. Hake was bullied at Lake Ellis by other kids as well as the staff. Lex and some of the nurses saw him as a hopeless case. Anna didn't agree, and she remembers a nurse getting frustrated about that and throwing Hake's file at her.
4: And it went whizzing past my head. <laughs> and said, take that and read that, and then you realise what a worthless guy this, this guy is. Don't waste your time on him.
1: But Anna wouldn't accept that Haki was worthless. In fact, after about six months, he was doing great. She says his behaviour in her classroom...
4: ...was impeccable.
1: How did you manage to communicate?
4: His English wasn't too bad. I found he could cope. But he didn't like reading and writing because it had been such a battle. And this was part of the breakthrough with Haki. I had a gonk in the classroom.
1: A gonk is like a homemade Humpty Dumpty. It's a child's soft toy.
4: He said, I want a gonk. I want the gonk. I said, no, you can't have that gonk. He said, well, I want it for my sister's child.
1: So Anna agreed to make a gong for him, on one condition.
4: I said, but Haki, I'll have to be read while I make the gong.
1: Anna would make the no. toy, but only as long as Haki was reading aloud to her.
4: <laughs> I showed him the books, and there was Harley Davidson, a manual and all sorts of things you know, that people had given me for the, for the library because they had no library there. And he chose a book about fairies. I got him to read it. He'd stop, but every time he stopped, I stopped. <laughs> he said, why aren't you making the gog? <laughs> I said, because you've stopped reading. <laughs> well, Haki, in a very short time, could read, and he was absolutely, he was intelligent, that boy. He really was intelligent.
1: Lakia learned to read and write in two languages. He started sending letters home, but he wasn't able to write them in Uean.
2: You've got to write your letters in uh, English, and you're not allowed to seal your letters. You've got to leave those letters open and take it and put it in the office and leave it there so they can read it before they post it.
1: From the start, Hakia wanted to let his family know what was happening at Lake Ellis. His grandmother, who he calls Mum, couldn't read English, but he wasn't allowed to write a new Aion, and he knew if he wrote something the staff didn't like, his letters wouldn't be sent. So I got angry
2: about that, and I said to myself, damn it, how am I going to get this, this message to my parents and my nana and to let them know what's going on in here? I was just sitting there in the hospital thinking, now how am I going to do this? Thinking, and, now if I'm going to do it in a sad face, yeah, I think I'll do it in a sad face so they can see that I'm
1: crying or something like that. But then he realised that a sad crying face might alert the staff as well. Finally it comes,
2: ah, no, no, here it comes. Oh, I'll do it on a happy face.
1: Haki had figured out his plan. He drew a happy smiling stick figure waving with a speech bubble written in Nguyen.
2: Just a few words at first, like that.
1: Translated, it means I have been given electric shock by the people, Mum. The pain is very bad.
2: Mum wrote back, you know, Why they give you that? Tell them to stop that. And I know how to, oh good. Now this is a good way of communication between me and my mother
1: now. His family now knew how Hake was being treated and that he was fearful enough to send coded messages in the speech bubble of a happy smiling stick figure. But they were powerless to get him out. By this point, Hake was a state ward, legally they were no longer his parents. Meanwhile, Anna Natusha's job was getting harder. Her classrooms were now packed, and she was working really hard to help every kid in her care. She believed her techniques were working, the love, boundaries and encouragement, and she hoped it would mean her kids got less shock treatment. But it wasn't working out like that. Instead, Anna says, Lex saw the kids improve behaviour, as evidence that his techniques were working. She was unintentionally reinforcing Leek's belief in his methods. Anna was distraught. Maybe this was a system that she couldn't change.
4: I was completely disillusioned. I was horrified at what was going on and the setup, which to me was a bit like Nazi Germany. They were all believing what they were doing was right. and and holding each other up.
1: Anna had strong Christian beliefs and asked God for help. She says she had a vision of a boy leading the way out of Lake Ellis, the one who was constantly picked on by staff and patients. It was Hake. In August 1976, Lex wrote a letter to the Director of Social Welfare at the time, saying
5: There is a pressure for the beds available and Hake's bed could be taken up with someone more salvageable and capable of being helped.
1: So Hake was released from Lake Ellis.
4: When Hake left the unit, I said to him, if you're in trouble, you ring me and I'll see what I can do because he was a bit nervous about going home, even though he was so excited, you know. A change is difficult.
1: Hake was going cold turkey off a roster of drugs with no support for the transition, and it wasn't long before Anna got a call from him.
4: He, this is typical of, of Huckey. He lit a cracker inside the house and frightened the baby.
1: Hake had lit a firework. Inside
4: And Granny nearly went up the walls, you know. <laughs> well, he rang me frantically saying how upset Granny was with him and how everything was so terrible, you know. He was in real trouble. <laughs> he said, what do I do, Anna? I said, I think you need to give Granny a, a break because you're coming off drugs and it's very difficult living with somebody who's who's coming off drugs.
1: Anna had an idea.
4: I think the best thing is you come down to my parents on the farm and stay with them for a couple of weeks.
1: Anna's parents had always taken in foster kids. Anna reckons part of why she was such a good teacher was because of her mum's patience and kindness.
4: She thought that was a great idea. And the social welfare was very, very good. They arranged it, they paid for the trip down. Anyway, Haki came down and I maintain that breakaway at the critical time made his family able to cope more. And he had a very good supportive network from Nui Island Church up there. With the combination, that was really Haki's success.
1: After a year at Lake Ellis, Anna was done. It broke her heart to leave her kids, but she felt she had no choice.
4: I loved all those children, and I think that was what my success was, because the children felt they were loved.
1: Eventually, when Huckey had settled down a bit, he came home to his grandmother's place. One day I came home and mum
2: told me that there's a a palangi man here that came here
1: uh, at home
2: looking for you and it said it's a doctor.
1: Yeah, another white doctor. That wasn't something Haki was very keen on by the stage, but it wasn't that palangi doctor.
5: Uh, Well, that's all he'd ever had was Pākehā sort of authority figures and I was probably referred to as Dr Sutherland. Well, he had just had Dr Leeks.
1: This is Dr Oliver Sutherland. At the time, he was tall and thin, like Dr Leeks.
5: So, you know, I can understand why Hucky was a bit reluctant, though he
1: answered my questions. Dr Sutherland seemed different. He had shaggy hair, a big moustache, and he was a bit, well, he was kind. It turns out he wasn't a doctor, doctor, as in a medical doctor. He was a scientist. His PhD was about plant resistance to the larvae of black beetles and grass grubs. But in his spare time, he was devoted to relentlessly challenging New Zealand's racism.
5: And the sort of decision-making process I would like to see is that the future system will be decided upon by representatives of all of the community so it truly serves the community interest and not just the interests of a small white male elite.
1: When Oliver Sutherland was growing up, he had believed, like a lot of people, that New Zealand's race relations were the best in the world. But when his postgrad research took him to California in the late 1960s, his beliefs were challenged by the civil rights movement and student protests flaring up on university campuses. When he came home, Oliver began to learn about all the ongoing impacts of colonisation and racism in Aotearoa. He became focused on the colonial justice system in New Zealand.
5: We first said that that the judicial system was brought to New Zealand like venereal disease and measles.
1: Oliver started hanging out with revolutionary social justice groups, the Polynesian Panthers and Ngā Tamatoa. They issued him a challenge. Do something about all this inequity. So with some mates, Oliver and his wife, Ula Skold, started the Auckland Committee on Racism and Discrimination, or ACCORD. They began to confront institutional racism wherever they found it eventually turning their attention to state-run welfare homes like Ōwairaka. The more they learned, the more outraged they became at the way Māori and Pacifica children appeared to be funnelled into them for quite trivial reasons. It was through this work that Oliver heard about Hakehalo and the adolescent unit at Lake Alice.
5: Nobody, virtually in the public, had ever heard of the fact that there was an adolescent unit there.
1: Oliver was a researcher, so digging was what he did he was like a dung beetle munching through the shit. He started by speaking to psychiatrists to try and understand what he was hearing.
5: I talked to Professor John Werry. John Werry was a very well-known psychiatrist and a teacher in, in, in psychiatry at the Auckland Medical School. And he said, yeah, well, there were perhaps cases where children might be given shock treatment, but they would be very prescribed and they would be for the classic cases of deep depression.
1: Most of the other psychiatrists Sutherland spoke to said the same thing. Either they hadn't used ECT on children, or very rarely. Oliver decided it was time to find Huckey
5: On the 8th of December, I think it was, in uh, 76.
1: You've got such a uh, memory for detail. <laughs>
5: well, I know that we sent our letter to Bert Walker, the Ministry of Education, on the 13th, and the shit hit the fan on the 14th <laughs> when our press statement came out.
1: Off the back of a court's press statement, Oliver arranged for a Herald reporter named Peter Trickett to interview Hake, along with an interpreter. Trickett's story hit the front pages with the headline Shock Treatment Boy Psychotic.
5: The 13-year-old Newwayan boy was given shock treatment in a special unit for adolescents because he was psychotic and uncontrollable. With the full permission of his parents, the specialist staff at the hospital were given authority
3: to carry out what treatment they thought necessary.
1: We now know that the so-called full permission was a piece of paper signed by Hake's birth mother, without a translator present. The story wasn't going to go away. After Trickett's piece, other reporters started to sniff around.
3: ECT's an easy subject to sensationalise. The staff of Lake Ellis Psychiatric Hospital is more than aware of that.
1: Media descended on Lake Ellis and journalists started wandering around the place, talking to patients and staff. Sidney Pugmire was the superintendent of Lake Ellis at the time, responsible for the day-to-day administration of the hospital. Staff alluded him that the media were snooping around asking questions, and he found Trickett, the Herald's journalist, poking around an ECT machine in one of the wards. Pugmire confiscated the machine, assuring the journalist that this was an old, defunct machine, that it wasn't being used anymore. Soon after, Dr Leeks stormed into Pugmire's office and demanded the machine back. It turned out that Pugmire was wrong. The old machine wasn't condemned. It was the exact machine Leeks had been using on the children, even though newer models were available. Pugmire gave the machine back to Lex, but he was starting to get worried. He wrote a letter to Stanley Myrams, the head of mental health. He said...
4: I can hardly take responsibility for treatments which I did not know were happening. The decision to continue ECT on the children's villa in circumstances which are widely criticised and which, by their lack of safeguards are hard to defend, still appears to me foolish.
1: Pugmai then asked the question we've all been wondering who's actually in charge of Dr Leakes? Pugmai had assumed it was the head of Palmerston North Hospital but Palmerston North denied this Later Pugmai would say I suppose he is really answerable to himself
4: Well that's where the trouble was
1: Here's teacher Anna Natouche again
4: he played one off against the other. He, he led Manawaroa to believe that Pugby was in charge and led Pugma that Manawaroa was in charge.
1: Manawaroa was at Palmerston North.
4: Well, that's what I gather. Lex was a law unto himself.
1: After a week of intense public scrutiny, the Minister of Social Welfare, Bert Walker, bowed to public pressure and announced an inquiry into Lake Ellis. By early the next year, 1977 a magistrate's inquiry in the case of the Nuaian boy was underway.
5: Not that anybody would have known of it, because, of course, it was all to be done in absolute secret and you weren't even allowed to keep any notes. But someone from Dr Sutherland's Accord Group did sneak notes out. There was a lot of in-depth evidence presented and cross-examination. The psychiatrists were interesting, and, and others, who got very defensive and, I think, really, really took a defensive position as far as Dr Leeks was concerned, You did not challenge what a fellow psychiatrist would do with one of his patients.
1: Professor John Weary was one of the psychiatrists called in as an expert witness.
0: Well, I'd never heard of Leeks. Two of us went along to this magisterial hearing and listened to um, what Leeks had to say and decided that his diagnosis was off-base because he, he was diagnosing these, uh, all these kids as having schizophrenia, and that was why he was admitting them to Lake Ellis, was because he had diagnosed them as having
1: a psychiatric illness. At the time, psychiatrists were using the DSM-2. The DSM is basically the Bible of psychiatry, the principal authority for psychiatric diagnosis. DSM stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And the first issue was released by the American Psychiatric Association in 1952. It's revised from time to time to keep up with developments in psychiatry. As of 2021, we're up to the DSM-5. According to Weary, it wasn't until the DSM-3, which was published in 1980, that things started to get more reliable.
0: Before that... It was 90% garbage, and after DSM-3, it was only 50% garbage.
1: In the 1960s, a child psychiatrist named Mildred Creek tried to clarify the diagnosis around what was then called Schizophrenic Syndrome of Childhood. She developed a nine-point criteria. This is what Weary says Leakes was using to diagnose the kids of Lake Ellis. A lot of psychiatrists were, but Weary was less sure about them.
0: And I never agreed with those nine points. I thought they were far too liberal. He could diagnose practically anything. I'm not here to defend Leeks, but it's a step too far for me to say that he would have used that diagnosis to justify the admission. I think he's just a bad diagnostician.
1: The child and adolescent unit was packed with kids that Leeks had diagnosed with schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia, late childhood schizophrenia, borderline or pre-schizophrenia. But what we can't even know for sure was whether he intentionally misdiagnosed them in order to admit them, or he just wasn't very good at his job. Leakes was given the chance to defend his use of shock treatment at the magistrate's inquiry, and he was smart enough to employ accepted psychiatric terminology to justify his practices. Here's an interview with him from the time, talking about what he called ECT it's effective it's
5: quick it's life-saving it's um, it has much to recommend it but it's by no means uh, something that is only for the uh, for the terribly damaged for the uh, for the most of mostly unfortunate it's Another means, it's when one tends to use less, it's when one tends to use second or third in the hierarchy of uh, treatment.
1: The inquiry raised hopes that Hake and Oliver's case might lead to some kind of accountability, but in the end it didn't. It was compromised by social welfare withholding information, and the terms of reference were far too narrow. They only looked at Hake's case, and they didn't even do that properly.
5: It didn't really address the issue of consent. It didn't address in the slightest the issue of the cultural shortcomings of the whole system. The fact that they were dealing with a Pacific Island boy, a Pacific Island family. Nobody used any interpreters. They didn't, couldn't communicate with the, with the family of the boy. All those things were overlooked. Uh, and in fact, at the end of it, Mitchell has, I think, eight pages of criticism of the Auckland Committee on Racism and Discrimination for having, for having publicised the case in the first place and said that we were guilty of what he called wild talk. So we were pretty disappointed, but it got completely overshadowed, of course, by the Ombudsman's report.
1: Ah, yes. Forgot to mention. At the time of this inquiry, the Ombudsman, Sir Guy Poles, was also taking a look at what was going on at Lake Ellis, Like with the inquiry into Hucky's case, the ombudsman was looking at the case of a single patient, a boy we can't name, but we'll call him Matthew. And Matthew also claimed to have suffered grave abuse at the hands of Leakes. Sir Guy Poles arranged for Matthew to be interviewed about this, and instead of justifying his actions, this time Leakes actually went out of his way to conceal them. Just before the interviewers arrived to speak to Matthew, he was given shock treatment he was completely incapacitated and unable to answer their questions.
4: Well, he was so groggy and so knocked about that he couldn't even think what his complaint was.
1: Anna Natouche remembers it.
4: Louis Aula my teacher's aide, came and told me what had happened and I said, I'll go and have a look. So I went over and I had looked and he was absolutely, he couldn't do anything.
1: Did the teacher aide make any comment about why they'd given shock treatment that morning?
4: We knew it was just a way of shutting him up.
1: The Ombudsman, Sir Guy Poles, was highly critical in the report he wrote. He stated that the boy had suffered a grave injustice and that neither the boy nor his parents had given consent, which meant he was possibly unlawfully detained and treated. It also asked why children were even being sent to a psychiatric facility by the Department of Social Welfare. Polls fronted up to TVNZ at the time.
3: I do not believe that Lake Addis should receive any child uh, unless that child is uh, properly committed within the terms of the Mental Health Act. Because in my view, the Children and Young Persons Act does not authorise the Department of Social Welfare to place a child in Lake Alice. Uh, when you have a guardianship order uh, made in favour of the Department of Social Welfare, they become in loco parentis. They have all the powers and authorities of a parent in respect of that child. Well, now, any parent would want to talk to the psychiatrist, any parent whose child is in Lake Alice, would be concerned, and the, the, the psychiatrist would talk to the parents. Of course he would. And just because it's another government department, it seems that they mustn't lose this sort of in loco parentis type of relation to the child.
1: Dr Oliver Sutherland, at Accord, would later receive a letter from Sugai Guy
5: It was a handwritten note to me, and he said, well, Oliver, we didn't do so badly over Lake Alice, did we? (laughs) And what he meant by that was, by the time his report came out, Leakes was already on a plane to Australia. The unit closed down in 78. Mm. Uh, Poles' report came out in 79. The whole thing had wrapped up and, and it dropped out of the public eye. In
1: 1978 the child and adolescent unit at Lake Alice closed down and Leakes disappeared to Australia. We don't know exactly why the unit was closed. Maybe the magistrate's inquiry did have an impact. The findings of the ombudsman were publicly rejected by politicians, but they might have put the wind up the Crown's lawyers. Or it could be that after Leakes decided it was time to get out of New Zealand, no one else was willing to pick up where he left off especially following the wave of public scrutiny. But for the survivors of Lake Ellis, it was all a bit of a hollow victory. Where was the accountability? Why was there no public inquiry into what had happened? And if the children were unlawfully detained and treated, then why wasn't someone charged with criminal offences?
0: Clearly you can see they just cover it up. They minimise everything that happened. And then they try to justify it by talking about behavioural issues all the time. And yet, clearly in those notes, you can see whose behaviour needs to be modified, and it isn't really mine. It's the way that they're treating me. Who's responsible for this?
1: Despite everything we've learned about Lake Ellis so far, we still don't have a full picture of what everyday life was like for the kids there. In episode four of The Lake...
5: We were out to get housing, Hey. And- and went some smokes, big
0: night out.
4: And there was such a lot of excitement. It was just such the biggest thing.
0: And I just asked what the fuck you were doing, and he put me back to sleep.
5: And it gets to a stage where it is normalised because it's part and parcel of what you're surrounded by, your environment that you're brought up in.
4: How many days? Day nine, day ten, day what? Day? Will they ever let me out?
1: The Lake was researched and hosted by me, Aaron Smale. It was produced, edited, and scripted by Kirsten Johnston and Melody Thomas at PopSock Media. Tyrone Marks helped support survivors during our interviews. Ben Lemmy wrote music for the series and recorded the narration. Mark Chesterman did sound design and the final mix. At Stuff, our script advisors were Eugene Bingham and Adam Dudding. And the commissioning editors were Carol Hirschfeld and Patrick Crutzen. This podcast was made with the support of New Zealand On Air.